the trauma from that particular experience actually silenced that generation and impacted how they felt about politics. Now, that's about 30 years, which is a whole generation. And then you now have a new generation who are not necessarily affected by what happened in, in 93 and are now thinking from the ground up with new tools that gives them that sense of agency. Having things like the smartphone, and the internet, social media, decentralized payment systems like Bitcoin, all these things give us the tools that gives people the ability to think that, you know what, maybe this time we have a chance. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Crypto.com and Nexo.io and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Wednesday, November 11th. And today we are diving into the world of Nigeria and African Bitcoin and crypto. And specifically, we're looking at how the recent NSARS movement has created kind of an inflection point potentially for both economic action in the form of adoption of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, as well as a larger belief in political power among the younger generations. I'm joined for this conversation first by Akin Sawyer, who is something of a crypto, DeFi, Bitcoin renaissance man. He's done a huge number of things in this industry. He has a background in international development and management consulting as well, so a really diverse perspective on it. And I'm also joined by Yele Badamose, who has been on the ground in Nigeria during these protests and who is also the CEO of Bundle Africa, which is a cash app Venmo type application for the African markets. Together, these guys help give a context for this NSARS movement that's bigger than just one issue, that's bigger than just a set of issues, and really helps us understand it in terms of how Nigeria and Africa as a whole is changing. So I hope you enjoy it. All right, gents, thank you so much for joining The Breakdown. I'm really excited for this conversation. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So let's, um, I want to do a little bit of frame setting first. Uh, you know, I don't want to assume that people who are listening happen to know anything about, uh, about Africa and Nigeria specifically and what's going on there. So maybe let's have each of you guys introduce yourself. Um, first, I guess, uh, Akin, you've been working on crypto across multiple parts of the African continent and thinking about this kind of broadly. Maybe you could just introduce yourself first and talk about what you've been doing to, to help people kind of understand the perspective you're coming from. Yeah, sure. So um, I can say I grew up in Nigeria. I was born in the United States, but I spent most of my life through secondary school, high school in Nigeria, and then moved back to the States to go to college and have been here since. Um, most of my professional life was in international development with IMF. I spent about 15 years working in management consulting with Accenture and Booz Allen Hamilton, mostly in the federal government space. So a lot of federal reg agencies, Homeland Security, um, that kind of stuff. Um, and then about, I'd say about 10 years ago, I started looking into Africa a little more directly from a professional standpoint. And I got, I got involved with mobile payments through an investment I made in a company called Splash Mobile Money in Sierra Leone. Um, and this was about 12 years ago now. And so that kind of got me into Africa. I was still doing consulting, doing that part-time. And over time, I just sort of slowly got deeper into fintech payments, trying to really understand how that created new opportunities for Africans. Um, and that sort of now got me into crypto because we're looking to solve this remittance problem. Um, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa is the most expensive quarter in the world to move money into. Um, and there's some structural reasons for that. There's some regulatory reasons for that. Um, uh, and so we looked at blockchain and, and crypto as, as a potential way um, to reduce costs, you know, kind of cut out middlemen and, and just try to make it a more competitive space. And that's how I got into crypto. Um, you know, but one thing led to another. I started looking at governance as a really important aspect of crypto and how these networks are going to be successful over the long term. And so I spent about a year and a half working with Decred over the last couple of years um, and have also sort of now migrated to working more in the DeFi space more closely. Um, and so, and I work for Barnbridge, which is a new 
um, you know, decentralized synthetics, or I'll call it like a synthetic debt protocol, derivatives protocol. Um, but I also sort of just work across the space, right? So involved with a few other projects um, in the DeFi space around interoperability um, and sort of developing these new money markets and these new financial primitives um, that I think is, is sort of the next revolution in, um, um, in finance. Awesome. That's really, really helpful. Uh, Yele, how about you? Um, okay, so um, I was born in Nigeria. Um, and I was in Nigeria throughout all my life until I was about 14 or 15. Um, then I moved to the UK um, where I was studying medicine before dropping out um, because I realized that, you know, what I was interested in, which is Africa's economic development, I felt that, you know, medicine was probably not the best pathway to achieve that. Um, I just discovered tech um, and I transitioned to um, a career in technology. So learned how to program and design applications. Um, in terms of sort of like more recently, um, I'm currently the CEO of Bundle. So Bundle is a social payments app for cash and crypto. So think Venmo or Cash App for Africa. Um, we launched about six months ago, backed by Binance and some local um, angel investors. I have about 100,000 um, registered users. Um, and I'm also the... Uh, founding partner of a fund called Microtraction that invests in um, early stage um, technology businesses. A lot of them in financial services, um, in, in, in mobility, um, healthcare and education. Um, and before founding Bondo, I was the director at Binance Labs, um, where I led investments not just into African projects, but into um, other global protocols like FIO protocol, um, but also actively invested in a bunch of other African crypto projects. Um, but what really drew me into crypto was because um, having done a number of financial or fintech investments, I really felt that we had some, you know, infrastructure challenges that needed to be leapfrogged. Um, and similar to how in Africa, you know, we, we leapfrog um, landlines and went straight into mobile. Um, and you're having places that are having you know, 4G technology already on, on, on telephony, I felt that um, crypto and digital assets and blockchain could potentially be um, one of these innovations that allow us to you know, build a parallel financial infrastructure from the ground up that made you know, access to quality financial services um, be independent of your geographical location, which I can touch on um, you know, later on in the show. Awesome. Super, super helpful. And such a diverse set of backgrounds for you guys. So I think part of the reason that I wanted to have this conversation now is we've just seen a, uh, a significant sort of uh, awakening civil action movement in Nigeria that, that really kind of caught the attention of the rest of the world in NSARS. Um, and I want to talk about that, obviously, but I want to kind of set up a little bit about what has been going on or, or how people should think about the sort of economic and political reality in Nigeria coming into this month, coming into October? And I know it's a impossibly large question, but in terms of just kind of giving people a, a, a little bit of like the way to think about uh, uh, key, key issues, key fault lines, what people are paying attention to, just what the kind of economic and political reality is, how would you kind of describe it before, before this movement launched this, this past month? Aki, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, and Yellow can kind of give a little more detail since he's on the ground. Um, so the way I kind of think about it is, I'm not to go too far in history, but, you know, Africa has sort of been set up as primarily, uh, you know, a subsidy for the rest of the world, right? So you went from colonialism to, you know, even post-independence. Most African countries have been structured in such a way that it was really focused on resource extraction, right? So you look across the African landscape to varying degrees, you know, some worse than others, but most countries basically are set up such that a small room elite essentially aligns with foreign interests, right? And those interests are really just aligned around extracting value from the country, right? So however it's done, whether it's through economic policies, whether it's through, you know, destabilizing, you know, democratic processes, whether it's through weakening, you know, political structures that empower the people, 
um, generally, that's basically been the narrative for you know Africa for the last you know couple hundred years. Um, and I think now the challenge is, you know, with the, with the advent of the internet, the advent of the proliferation of information, um, you know, broader education across certain groups of people, more exposure, you're getting a lot more pushback, right? Because information is more readily available, right? And that's now grinding against the system that wants to continue basically oppressing the people, in my view, right? In, in whatever ways you, 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 you see that. Um, and so generally we're at a place where, you know, I think people, especially young people, right, when you look at Nigeria, for example, where the average age is like 18 and a half, the majority of people are young, they're looking at a future that doesn't look great. And they're like, look, you know, I probably going to live for the next like 50, 60 years. And the people in power are essentially proliferating policies that do not support um, a viable life for the for the majority of Nigerians, right? So you're getting that pushback and you're getting this sort of environment where bad policies are now like, you know, people are getting angry about lots of things, right? Um, and they now have some power and some ability to voice that and voice that in a very global way, right? And so I think that's revealing, um, so we're revealing on both sides, right? It's revealing the fact that young people have access to more information um, and more and more, they're pushing back against that. Um, and the powers that be are essentially now, you know, flexing, right, their, their, their ability to kind of repress this. And so that's, in my view, sort of like broadly where, you know, we are, right? And it's, it's, it's a question now of what tools the young people have to wield. There's, a, there's democracy in Nigeria, but how do we engage a little more in that process to essentially take back power? Um, and so I think it's, you know, in my view, that's sort of like, where we are at this point. Thanks, Akin. I think I definitely agree with the sort of broad arguments that Akin raised there. Um, like you said, it's a very broad question, right? And the way I like to kind of compare it is the what's different between the Occupy Nigeria um, sort of era, which was in 2012 and now, right? Um, so for me, one of the big things is just the average age of the population, right? Um, in 2012, um, there were still a definitely younger um, Nigerian population, but a number of those people were kind of disconnected, right? So um, at the time, mobile phones were still mainly just traditional feature phones. Um, smartphones were still expensive. Internet data was, 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 wasn't, wasn't cheap. Um, and so even though we still had kind of like similar realities, um, people still felt somewhat isolated, right? What has is, what is really, really changed now is that things, you know, some, some of the key economic indicators, which I think the most popular one is the Naira to dollar rate, is a lot worse. Um, I'm not sure what it was in 2012, but I know five years ago, you know, you'd have gotten like $1 would have been about 200 and maybe 280 Naira. And now $1 is about 450 Naira, right? So in the last kind of like six to, 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 to eight months, we've seen almost like a 20, 20 to 35% depreciation in the value of Naira to dollar. Um, so that's definitely something that's playing in the minds of people. Um, a, lot more, a lot more Nigerians seem to be um, trying to immigrate. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, a lot of Canada being very open, you know, in terms of the their willingness to take, um, uh, um, you know, um, Africans or Nigerians who are looking for a better opportunity, similar to like the U.S. in, in you know, in the in the early 1900s. And so a lot of people are really, really disillusioned, right? So there's been this kind of disillusion, disillusionment, but at the same time, we're, we're still kind of connected through the internet and through social media, you know. So right now, you have kind of the, you know, popular um, celebrities and artists um, and influencers who before five years, five years ago, eight years ago, maybe I had 20 to 50,000, um, you know, followers on social media, the most popular having 100,000. Today, you know, people are having millions, 7, 10, 15, 20 million followers across all these different social platforms. Number two is that the African diaspora and, and, and Africa are a lot more connected. So again, 10 years ago, during Christmas or summer, you wouldn't really have people flying 
back to Nigeria to, to you know for 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 holiday, right? But now you know people are coming back home, and there's a lot more connection. And you know these this 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 connection has always been there is a lot tighter. And I think like what has really really changed is that for the first time, people really felt connected in this idea of like wow we want change, and for me personally, the way the way the way it felt was almost everybody has has had one kind of experience or relationship with the issues that have been raised. So either you knew it or someone else, someone someone else that you know knew about these particular issues, and that really made people have a very visceral connection to the underlying issues. We all knew deep down that it was bigger than you know police brutality or you know um, the, the the economy. I think people just want people just want change, you know, and it's been it's been underlined for a while. Um, you know, the price of, of 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 fuel has gone up. We still don't have power. Um, I think um, right now you, it's very difficult to get access to dollars. So if you went to pay for things online, you know, you 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 wouldn't be able to spend more than two hundred dollars a month on your on your on your card. Um, you know, so there's been a bunch of this, this different underlying tensions that's been going on for a while. And I think also 2020 has, you know, has just been a, a very unique year with everything going on in the world, with COVID, the economic conditions are getting worse. Um, and I think it was just all of these things put together that, that, that really, really, you know, um, ignited what, what evolved into this into this um, end end SARS movement, and I can go into more detail over time. But I think understanding kind of like this context of, you know, how the economy has, has evolved in the last ten years, plus the fact that people are a lot more connected. You have smartphones that are cheaper and more readily available, so more people are on social media, and the you know um, the, the the influencers, the celebrities are all kind of like very conscious and awake about these issues, um, and you know, all these things kind of like set up this 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 stage for what what evolved into the NSAS movement. I think it's super super helpful. So I mean, you basically have a situation here where you've got these structural economic issues uh, being faced by you know multiple generations, but especially the younger generation who's thinking about their future and who have the tools to communicate with one another and uh, and kind of have these models of of saying that we don't want to stand around and just kind of let let the future happen to us. We want to make it a, a, a better place, right? And so then let's get maybe into the specific. Uh, almost the match that lit this particular set of actions. So I guess, t- tell us a little bit, Yale, about what SARS is and how the sort of pattern of abuse has come in. Okay. Um, so SARS stands for Special Anti-Robbery Squad. Um, and they were, they were a police unit that was set up in the, I believe, early 90s to combat um, things like robbery, which at the time was um, an extremely notorious um, um, you know, form of crime in 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 Nigeria. Um, essentially, they don't have they don't wear uniforms because they're meant to be in plain clothes. So robbers don't really know when they're around. Um, so they're plain clothes. They're driving sort of like on mass vehicles, um, and they have kind of like the the, the license to carry um, firearms in, in 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 public. Now, what has happened in the last kind of ten years? of, you know, 10 to 15 years is that there's been a digitization of cash. It's still kind of not fully prevalent, but a lot of people don't have huge amounts of cash in their houses like they used to in the 90s and in the, uh, and the, in the early 2000s, right? So, you know, with, with SARS, they still had this kind of like very broad remit um, and, you know, began to get involved into things that were not really necessarily assigned to them. And over time, the, they, you know, they just became a lot more brazen, right? So there were, you know, um, instances of, of, of direct robbery, um, extortion, um, kind of like wrongful imprisonment, assault, um, kidnapping. And, you know, almost everybody knows someone that has a SARS experience or has had a SARS experience themselves. Um, and I think during this COVID lockdown, it really felt like it became worse. So me personally, I had no experience, and I kind of shared that for the first time on 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 Twitter, right about when the you know the the movement began to really take up steam. 
So what 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 really kind of pushed or kind of like you know set set things off was that there was a video of 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 a of of of, of someone in in a in a southern state being being assaulted um, by 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 SARS, and they actually kind of like drove off um, with the with the with the individual's vehicle, um, and you know a lot of people just became really upset by you know by 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 that, and even myself when I kept seeing you know I kept seeing the stories on social media, and I was like, wow, you know, I, I really want to share mine. And I shared mine, and, you know, it was probably the most engaged, not probably, it is the most engaged tweet I've ever had in my in my life, almost 1.5 million impressions. And it was just what everyone was talking about. And I think what really supercharged this was because over, like, a, a space of a week or two, you could see the level of coordination that was happening in a decentralized manner that made everybody wonder, like, wow, like Nigeria can be so much better. Like, I've never seen anything like it in my life. You know, there were um, legal legal representation that was set up across Nigeria um, in about twenty four states. People were donating money to to support protesters. There was huge amounts of transparency and accountability. Um, you know, there was there was so much unison and and, and unity and peace and. You know, people would clean up from the protest grounds. People were donating, providing water, food, um, music. Um, like, it was just, like, I felt for the first time, I really felt proud to be Nigerian. It wasn't coming from sports or entertainment. Like, I felt what it meant to have some kind of functioning, like a functioning, democratized, you know, I don't, I, I, I can't even explain it, right? And so... It made it made everyone like wow like if we can do all this stuff if we can allocate funds and get all this stuff done get people out like spread the word and get people involved in this movement like what what can Nigeria be you know and I think that's kind of like what just supercharged it right like it it just went everywhere and you know you wake up and the only thing you could think of is NSARS I'm a workaholic and I know during like those three kind of like first three weeks in October, there was I I, I couldn't work on anything else. It was just NSARS. You know, um so maybe like I can kind of speak about it from his his perspective being um you know um outside of Nigeria at the time. But for somebody who was on the ground was that protest, I really felt like wow like this is the future of like Ni- Nigeria, we have the right people to make Nigeria work. And everybody just wants a better Nigeria. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll pipe in on that. I think I, I can echo a lot of what Yelena said, right? Especially around the aspects of not being able to do anything else. And it's kind of taken over. I mean, same for me. It took over my life for a couple of weeks. You know, I was waking up at 2 a.m. Eastern time, um, you know, and just engaging. And it was interesting because, like Yelena said, you know, you know, we live on crypto Twitter, like I think a lot of folks in crypto, and it's like SARS Twitter just kind of took off. And it was just very easy to kind of engage and connect with people. And, you know, ultimately, it was also this ability to just, you know, not only engage through a platform that at least the Nigerian government didn't have the power to unilaterally shut down, but also the ability to actually move financial value. Like I was, I was home in D.C., and I was sending ETH, I was sending Bitcoin, I was calling on my friends who were in the crypto space and tweeting and saying, yeah, send money to the movement. You know, you could see even U.S. celebrities. I think one of the first people I saw tweeting about it, fairly early, a little baby who, you know, has this anthem for, like, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, like, he tweeted in SARS. Like, and so it was this sense of just, not just, like, Africans and Africans in diaspora, but, like, Black people around the world, like, in solidarity. Right. And the feedback loops were really short. Like you could figure out who was saying what, like communication was going through, funding was going through. And like Gary said, like the accountability of how those funds were being spent and dispersed was incredible. Right. So you had, you know, the, the main you know, the main group that at least I saw from my end was the feminist coalition. And they're basically making daily accounts of what they were doing. We received X, we spent X, right? Like daily on Twitter. Like they had like a financial report every day. At the end of the movement, they did a complete report and, you know, account for every dollar. And, you know, the thing I think about the biggest calculation by the Nigerian government 
Well, early on into the, the protest, they shut down the ability for um, the Feminist Coalition to receive funding through like Nigerian banks and the Nigerian financial infrastructure. And the rules get a beat because it's just sort of a BTC pay server. And like, it's, it's like, it was, it was like, yeah, now we have our own payment rail and no one could touch it. And the fact that you know, all that stuff is on chain, right? You can see that. Like, no one necessarily has to give you your account. Like, you could see like the flows going through. Like, you need, if you need the addresses, right? And it just made it very clear that I think for the first time, a lot of Nigerians, and, and to put some context too, right? Nigerians in diaspora send back like over $25 billion a year back to Nigeria. And that's primarily from the United States and Europe, right? So when we think about that, just buying power of that capital, now realizing that they can more directly influence change if we just organize and we get together and like we use systems that, you know, are censorship resistant, we use systems that kind of show good accountability. To me, it was like a watershed moment, right? Because it basically now said that, look, all the tools we need to take back our country um, and for young people to have a lot more say are there. And by the way, a lot of those tools are outside of the purview of, you know, you know the, the folks who kind of run the country, right, who are basically, you know, not, not to sort of belittle them, but they're folks who are born in a very different generation. They don't understand the internet. Right, they're you know they like um like a Nigerian guy. Someone said you know they should be in the backseat of the car, not driving it. You know these guys are sixty, seventy, eighty. You know they're they're not the future; they're the past. So I think basically, it's not just like a dichotomy of oh we have these tools, we have this ability, but it's also the fact that the current incumbents don't even understand um, how to use these tools effectively or the power that. Um, that these tools have. And I think that gives ultimate power to young people. I think it gives ultimate power to the diaspora that's educated and, and, and is, you know, has to, and really deserves a much bigger say in, 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 in the democratic process um, in Nigeria, which who, who have been to some extent, you know, minimized. Like, so so as, a, as a person in diaspora, like I can't vote in Nigeria, even though I hold a Nigerian passport and I grew up there. Like, I literally would have to go to Nigeria, go to my local government, and, you know, sign up there. Like, that makes no sense. Like, I should be able to have some ability, right, to vote and to, and to cast my vote wherever I am in the world. Like, there's, there's no reason why that, why that can happen, right? So things like that, I think, are now coming to the fore. And I think we're, uh, you know, the younger generation is realizing the power they have. And, and by the way, too, I think their parents, right, who kind of are, in this sort of middle generation where they sort of grew up in a state. I mean, I grew up in a police state through the 80s, right? We had military governments. Right? My parents grew up basically in police state all their lives. And, you know, there's a, there's a psychological, I think there's a psychological barrier that we broke where our parent generation who have been essentially muzzled, right, and, and never really, you know, growing up, like, you know, my dad was always, and my parents of an educated class that basically said you didn't get involved in politics, mm. right? You educated yourself and you found your way, right? But politics was sort of like the domain of, you know, sort of the, the, the class of society that had almost nothing to lose, right? Which I think was, you know, a wrong position to hold, but they were also like, you know, children of the generation, right? And I think that the younger people are not that encumbered. Right, and we're now in a position where it's like, no, forget that. Like, and I think parents now are also like in the background, almost like egging people on because the movement was not just young people. Like, there were a lot of like silent, um, the silent generation that were behind, like supporting this. Like Gary said, providing resources, providing food, providing you know all sorts of support. And even when you know things eventually blew up with you know the you know the, the shootings that happened, and you know there are a lot of you know people in. You know, my dad's generation has started speaking out and have been more actively speaking out in support of young people that we really haven't seen, right? I, at least I haven't seen this vocally, right? So there's a, there's a, this thing is uniting us in, in a way across even generations now where people now, you know, some of, some of the good people in the older class are now speaking up and saying, all right, you know, enough is enough too. Like, you know, this has gone on too long, right? And so I think that solidarity is, is really the power that we're living now, and, and I think that we're going to kind of push forward. This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com. 
the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place and earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly on all purchases. Reserve yours in the Crypto.com app today. Many investors want to be a part of the next bull run. Others seek to build their dream home, finally launch that startup, or fund their education. Try Nexo's instant crypto credit lines and borrow against any major cryptocurrency with no minimum or maximum withdrawal amounts, no fees whatsoever, no credit checks, and flexible repayment. Not to mention the APR starts at just 5.9%. Stay on top of your investment game with Nexo.io. And remember, it's your crypto, your credit, your choice. Get started at Nexo.io. I've heard this sort of sentiment in other other movements too, that once it's almost like once the flood is broken on a belief that you can actually exert agency and reclaim some power, it becomes a, it's a genie that's very hard to stick back in the bottle, you know, and it and it usually takes a younger generation that hasn't totally bought the line of uh, you just don't get engaged in politics to yeah. do it, but the, but very often to your point, their their parents come right along as yeah. that happens. Yeah, so I think what 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 is sort of like very interesting with some of the points that I can raise towards the end was this idea of like the older generation, right? Um, and it actually forced me to do, a, you know, kind of like personal research. So in, in, in the early 90s, about well, 91 to 93, there were lots of kind of protests um, during the military regime um, who wanted to, um, we had sort of like this politician, um, very famous locally, um, MK Abela, who won, you know, um, a democratically connect, um, a democratically done um, election, but he, he wasn't kind of installed as the as the president. And you had sort of like people who were in universities, you know, um, my my age, protesting, and unfortunately, um, things didn't go their way, right? And I think like the 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 lessons or the um, trauma from that particular experience actually silenced, you know, that generation and, and, and impacted how they felt about politics. Now that's about, it's almost about 20, it's about 30 years, which is a whole generation. And then you now have a new generation who are not necessarily, you know, affected by what happened in, in, in 93 and are now thinking, you know, from, from the ground up with new tools that gives them that sense of agency, right? I keep saying it that, you know, having things like the smartphone, having the internet, having social media, um, having, you know, decentralized payment systems like 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 Bitcoin, um, all these things give us the tools that gives people the ability to think that, you know what, maybe this time we have a chance. You know, maybe this time things can be different. And me personally, right, like, I actually think that the, the usefulness of decentralized technologies go beyond just the financial reals itself. You know, I've been in conversations where we are thinking about, you know, how do we, um, how do we scale up, you know, this, this, the decentralized coordination that we really, really had in this movement. You know, like things like DAOs are extremely famous um, in, in crypto, but our sort of crypto, one of the only things about it, and one of the things that me and Akin, you know, really like to riff off about this idea of like governance, right? The governance on the blockchain and why he's so passionate about Decred. And, you know, for me, I can't help but just think like, what does the next five to six years look like? Because a lot of people were introduced to the utility of, of, of crypto and Bitcoin for the first time during NSARS, right? They were learning, you know, how do I buy Bitcoin? How do I send Bitcoin? What is an address? And this is already a country that is, you know, we have the highest kind of Bitcoin per capita in the world because we, we you know, a lot of people use crypto um, for a variety of reasons locally already. But this really took Bitcoin even further, further, further um, mainstream. Um, so I think that, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how, how this plays out. Um, and, you know, um, unfortunately, um, you know, on the 20th of October, we had uh, the, the, the military actually shoot and, and injure and kill some protesters. And I think for, for a lot of us, like we, you know, if I'm being honest, personally, I felt so down, um, you know, almost depressed by 
by by by that because I just couldn't believe what happened. You had unarmed protesters wearing the you know green, white, green, which is our country's colors, you know, raising singing the national anthem and raising our flags and being shot out by the military is meant to protect protect you. And you know, this was live streamed on Instagram. I had 150,000 people watching it, you know, at around seven, seven thirty, eight, eight, nine, nine PM. It's probably the largest live stream on Instagram that that you know that 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 we've had. Um, and you know for a number of us like we really felt like wow okay what what next right it's very clear that we have to take this towards places that you know um the government or other forces can't um exert violence right um and that's that's that means the beauty of sort of like governance the beauty of decentralized technologies wherein you know you're you're creating alternative um avenues for people to coordinate um, um, and 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 make decisions and and you know um, um, take particular coordinated actions without uh, um, the government being able to, I guess, you know, enforce or take 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 the kind of action that they did in the last in the last you know in, in, in October. So hopefully, you know, the technology actually plays a a huge role in this. Um, but I can't predict what that will look like. It sounds to me like part of what happened was this technology was used to solve a specific problem, which was the problem of funds that were being donated, not getting to the various parts of the sort of decentralized protest movement who they were intended for because of uh, traditional banking infrastructure. So there's a real problem that it's solving. But then people, as they started to interact with it, it's almost a um, a politically liberating force, not just sort of a, a, a money technology. It has much bigger implications. Did you see that actually happen as, as people were kind of introduced to Bitcoin and crypto through that through that context? Yeah, I mean, I think like, to be honest, like it happened so quickly that, you know, is probably a lot of that education would happen, you know, as a byproduct of having a problem being solved, right? Um, by the time it was really like, here's this problem. I want to keep donating. You know, this is the way to solve that problem. Um, and to be honest, personally, I felt like, wow, okay, there's still a lot of work to be done. You know, I mean, I built, you know, I, I, I run a company called Bundle and, um, you know, we 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 try to build a product that is as simple as you can for somebody who has never used crypto before. A couple of my investments, like you know, buy coins, yellow card, Bitsika, all of these guys, you know, um, are trying to solve you know similar problems as well. Um, but you know, we still felt that, like, despite people not being as familiar, say, like the first time users, they were because we're motivated to solve or like to just donate you know, they were, they would sort of like go through those hurdles. But now people are like, okay, I'm curious about this, you know, Bitcoin thing. Like, where do I get started? How do I learn more? And so personally, one of the things that, you know, we're, we're working on is um, kind of content to kind of help this new crypto or novice users to sort of learn more about the technology. But like you said, it's a, it's a, it's a genie in a bus that has been let out that can never go back in. Yeah, I mean, I'll add to that too. I, I think that, I mean, I had friends who bought Bitcoin for the first time, you know, signed up for Coinbase just to send money for the movement, right? And, you know, I think on this end, the consciousness of the fact that, because that's where they're in a position where they wanted to participate a lot more and a lot closer in what's going on in Nigeria, right? And the tools were just very not great. Like I talked about remittances early on, like, it's historically been expensive and clunky, right, to send money to Nigeria, especially if you're sending money to someone who's unbanked, right, who doesn't have a bank account. It even gets a little more, like, interesting and challenging. It takes days, money, money, man, extracting value, right? All of a sudden, these guys are, like, spinning up Coinbase accounts, right, because that's an easy sort of first step. And send money to a Bitcoin address, and the person receives it in seconds or minutes, right? And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, like, here's a tool I can use that I never really thought about. And ultimately, I think it's important to educate those who are who have the, the money, right? So 
if, if I'm selling Bitcoin, I'm, I'm telling my relatives like Bitcoin is the way you're going to receive cash to pay your rent or I'm supporting you in some way, then you figure it out, right? Because we want to get those funds. So I think there's a two-way like learning process that's going to start taking place where the dashboard is sending $25 billion plus home, right, needs to be educated as to ways that not just have give you financial sovereignty, but they're cheaper, right? They're, you get more control, right? There's more predictability if you do a peer-to-peer transfer than going through the financial system, going through a mobile money with extra costs, and potentially having like your transfers like, you know, seized or stopped by the government, as we've seen, right? So I think people are becoming wise to that. And I think as education grows on both sides, as people get more access and more mainstream access on both ends, you know, PayPal launching crypto, for example, like that's huge, right? Because there are lots of people who already have PayPal accounts, right? And we say, look, I'm not necessarily going to start, you know, set up a new Coinbase account, but sure, I'll, I'll, I'll meddle with, with, with Bitcoin and Ether on my PayPal account because I know how to use that anyway already. You know, I was really happy to see PayPal saying they're going to invest a lot in education, which I think, like Yelly said, is really the big focus or should be the big focus in the short term because as people become more aware of and understand these tools and understand why it makes sense, um, I think you'll see much more and greater adoption, right? And I think that over time, I'm extremely like, um, I'm extremely, you know, optimistic. Uh, I think over time we'll see greater and greater adoption because on the other end, in Nigeria, for example, the vast majority of people are unbanked. Right? And the vast majority of people never had access to foreign exchange, right? But Nigeria is a massive trading country, right? And even just from the data I've seen, lots of people are using Bitcoin primarily to settle global transactions because they didn't have access to, to, to foreign exchange in the first place. And it's even harder to like, aggregate enough foreign exchange to run the business predictably, right? And so Bitcoin is really like a, 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 a godsend to a number of businesses like, you know, during the last financial downturn in Nigeria, in like, I think, 2014-15, we went through, like, our first recession in, like, 20 years, you know, dollar dried up because oil prices tanked. The government had led dollars to kind of spend in the system. And the guy on the street who's not connected and doesn't have friends in high places, well, you're out of luck, right? And many businesses really shut down. And those that survived probably found Bitcoin as a way to sell these transactions. And we haven't looked back since. Because the financial system that you're stuck within is has proven unreliable over the best times. Like, why on earth would I now go back to that system that's unpredictable and unreliable when I actually have ultimate control? You know, and I think people always ask this question about um, volatility, right? And I think even when it was just Bitcoin, right, well, a lot of these businesses would still use Bitcoin because it was their only hope, right? And so these businesses are high margin businesses, so they could absorb that volatility. But with stablecoin now, I think that's the game changer, right? Because I think it's part of the reason why we're seeing this massive adoption of stablecoins and growth, because in a lot of emerging markets in Africa and across the world, right, people are transacting with them because it's the only way to access foreign exchange, the only way to access some sort of dollar um, denominated like um, um, store of value in you know, an exchange. And unlike in the U.S., where the average person doesn't care because, you know, your banks work generally, right? Nothing, it's not that difficult to use the current financial system. Um, for, for, for a lot of the rest of the world, like, it's a very, very different picture, right? And, and I think that, to me, this, that, that sets things up for, you know, a very, very different future. And, and in my view, a much faster acceleration and, and proliferation of, of crypto as, as a means of exchange and storing value. It feels like a a pretty historic moment, one that we could look back as as pivotal and and as an inflection point. And I could talk to you guys for about this for for hours, but I guess just to kind of wrap up, you know, in terms of the the specific movement that just launched, uh, what do you think is next? What are your concerns? And then, kind of more broadly, what do you think is important to do next to to really take advantage of this moment? You know, both in terms of of crypto certainly, but in terms of broader just political empowerment and. Uh, okay, maybe we can follow up because you were kind of just on that path and then we'll, we'll close with you, Yele. Yeah, so I, mean, I think it's just really consolidating around what just happened and, and actually building more, more permanent structures that would see things to the end, right? So Yele talked about this idea of DAOs and governance, which you know, we've talked about a lot for the last couple of years, 
you know, I think we need to set up like literally like DAO structures that anyone can subscribe to, anyone can get involved with, right? There's a governance process that's robust that, you know, that scales, right? So like, you know, you can't have everyone talking at the same time. So you have to actually delegate power in certain instances, but literally like these permanent structures that anyone can subscribe to, whether you're, you know, Nigerian, Nigerian diaspora, or anyone else who's just wants to kind of join the movement and, and wants to act in solidarity. Because I think that those structures will do a couple of things. One, it'll create just more long-term organization and coordination um, that I think we're going to need to kind of see this to the end. But I think it'll also sow the seeds for a different way to govern ourselves, right? Part of the challenge in Nigeria, in my view, is the fact that we have mostly centralized coordination, right? So we have a, a government where the federal government basically is, I mean, it's a republic, but the federal government is a lot more powerful than you would have in the U.S., for example, right? States' rights and all those, like, you know, we, we, states are, most states are about beholden to the federal government, right? And I think that, you know, when governance works, when most governance is local, right? Where you can see where your taxes are going to fund your education, right? You can see your politicians living in the same neighborhood you are. And when things are going awry, like, you know where they live. Like, they, 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 they kind of have to live there. Like, I think we need to sort of decentralize governance, um, move it down more to the people, where they need to, to interact with their local government. And I think that, you know, these tools that we have, um, leveraging crypto, leveraging, you know, transparent governance, I think it becomes a way, in my view, that we can, we can really solve some of these governance issues that, that plague us permanently. And there's no reason why we can't leverage um, crypto platforms to govern ourselves, to fund projects, right, to, to coordinate around um, people contributing to the future of the country, right? So for me, I think it's, it's, it's two phases, right? It's the one step of keeping us organized in this movement, but it's also the beginning to sort of develop these mature platforms that we could extend to governance, like, wholesale across the country. Yeah, I think, you know, Acting is definitely um, along the kind of key line. So essentially, the first thing is protests are more a way to raise awareness around an issue. Um, and the one thing that I, I can say is that, you know, the, the, it definitely got the government's attention. Um, but for true sustained and systemic change, then we really need two things. One is that we need a lot more young people to understand, you know, governance and the democracy and the powers that they do have. But the second thing is actually around like coordination itself, right? So, you know, it, it, decentralization during the NSARS movement was its biggest strength and its biggest weakness, right? Um, and, you know, it was a strength because, you know, it wasn't really clear who the leader was. It was almost... You know, one of the biggest mantras was this idea of no leaders. And obviously that was a bit confusing to the government or like, you know, um, traditional media because every single past historic one has always had somebody that you could say, okay, here's the leader, here's the main voice, let's speak to that person and everything is fine. While this was like, it wasn't clear who it was. So the, the thing is, as as that kind of like no leaderless um, movement um, scales, it becomes difficult to sort of, always stay on the same message. So it's like, how how do you then kind of get, how do you coordinate this decentralized slash leaderless movement? And how do you, how do you also achieve consensus? Um, and this is where I think, you know, is really exciting some of these conversations because it's very clear that almost everybody right now keeps coming back to a few things. Everyone knows that technology will play a role to solve some of these problems, but most people don't have the answers. Now, obviously because of, you know, I guess our, proximity to crypto and 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 the industry you know i can see potential areas whereby some of these things that we've built um especially like in DeFi, could play a huge role right so number one is around kind of just fundraising and sort of capital formation on the blockchain um that level of transparency that you know um Fem feminist coalition was showing in terms of the collection of funds and disbursement of funds to those who needed it you know um um, um, you know, every 24 hours could now be real time. Um, and then even kind of like getting consensus on things like what particular candidates should we support 
um, you know, um, uh, what particular issues do we want to focus on, um, you know, as a as a as a broader coalition or you know, um, a broader group. Um, I think these are kind of like some of the next steps. Um, it's still too early to say that these are things that are already in line, but they're definitely conversations that are that are happening now. Whether that happens on the blockchain or not, um, time will tell. Um, but you know, the same way how Bitcoin was. Um, sort of the best option to um, help in um, as a as a payment rail for this decentralized movement. I think some of these other things that we've seen around DAOs and this distributed governance would also be strong candidates in the future as well. Awesome! Really, really cool stuff. Well, let's uh, let's make sure to check back in in uh, in six months or something like that when we've had a have more of a chance to see how this all plays out. But I really appreciate you guys both taking some time today to um, share both your 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 experience with what's been happening as well as just your sense of where things go could go from here. So thanks for joining the show. Reflecting on that conversation, the thing I keep coming back to is. The power of this new world of digital assets, of non-sovereign financial tools like Bitcoin, to actually allow people to do things in political environments where they would not otherwise be able to. This is a situation we just had where there were people in a movement that other people around the world wanted to support and were willing to send money to, but couldn't get that money to the people on the ground because of the compromise of traditional financial rails, which were owned by the government being protested against, or at least controlled by the government being protested against. Bitcoin and other cryptos simply moved around that. In so doing, they introduced a whole new set of people to these technologies, to these money technologies, to these tools of not just money freedom, but political freedom. And that has big implications for the future. It's going to expand how people think about opportunities to use these tools, but it's also going to change how people think about organizing in general. So I think this was a really powerful moment and a demonstrative moment in how Bitcoin and other cryptos can be a tool for global freedom expansion. So that's why I wanted to bring you this show. And I hope you learned a little something on the way. I hope you give these guys a follow and keep paying attention to what they have going on and what they're thinking about. And I appreciate you listening. So until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.